Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this episode of the AAF Exchange, we'll discuss the first weeks of the new administration and the new Congress. Joining us to discuss the latest is, of course, Douglas Holtzagen. Doug, thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Kyle. Good to see you. How have you been the last couple of weeks? Uh, you know, um, I, I was laughing. Someone described this as 2020 season two. And so, yeah, that's that's kind of right. <laughs> uh, it's really annoying that last that uh, it seems to have been uh, renewed for another season, if you will. Yes. <laughs> well, here we are. Um, it's been a week since we saw, thankfully, the peaceful inauguration of President Joe Biden. Um, so let's talk about, you know, Biden's day one or rather week one actions at this point. Um, he signed a flurry of executive orders dealing with everything from rejoining Paris, the Paris Agreement, um, to strengthening the Buy America requirements, um, to changing the way this administration will consider regulation. Um, he also proposed a significant uh, immigration reform package. Um, so let's start with immigration reform. Um, what is Biden proposing and what is Congress likely to do? The proposal is to... Uh, reform uh, our immigration laws. And in particular, uh, there's a group of legalizations. So uh, people are familiar with the so-called dreamers, those who came here with their parents illegally at a young age and have um, grown up in the United States, typically have gone to U.S. schools, often graduated from U.S. colleges. Um, uh, and the, the dreamers were the subject of, a, of something called Deferred Action Against Childhood Arrivals, uh, or DACA, under the Obama administration. So first thing is to just get that off the table, legalize those individuals. Um, that's had that bipartisan support in the past. So that's sort of a starting point for this. Uh, second bundle is to legalize those, uh, who, including their parents and others who came here illegally. So find a path to legal status, uh, which typically has included paying fines, things like that. Um, dealing with the backlog of uh, roughly 11 million illegal immigrants in the United States, uh, depends on the estimate. Um, uh, when you do that, you have to pair it as a matter of both substance and politics with border security so that you don't legalize illegal folks and then just get a new generation coming in. So they, you know, they have a piece of this reform, which is about, um, border security with less emphasis on physical barriers, uh, the Trump wall in particular, and more on high technologies, uh, surveillance of the border, uh, uh, different approach to um, how you do apprehensions, no child, no, no separating children from their parents, all that. So that bundle of things. And then an initiative in foreign policy to go to the, the sources of a lot of the illegal immigration, Central America, Guatemala being the, the poster child for this, and trying to improve conditions there so as to produce less of a push factor into, into the U.S. So that's that's really the, the um, initiative. Um, What's missing there is any real substantive reform to the core visa granting uh, system. And so uh, I've written in the past, and AF has done a lot of work on the, the impact of immigration on economic growth is actually quite substantial, both in terms of the growth in the, the future labor force. Uh, we have very low fertility in the US, and in the absence of immigration, we actually shrink. And so immigration is a tremendous force for the size of the labor force, you could also change the, the quality of the labor force depending on who you admit. And we've never really attempted to do that. And, and so that's a that's what I expect to be 
uh, a hole in this legislation that will get filled if they are successful in getting through the House and Senate during the course of that process will have to come up. Mm-hmm. So is, is this similar to the proposal you and uh, Jackie Varis worked on a couple of uh, months or years ago at this point? That's the missing piece. They, they need to put something in that looks like that um, in terms of reforming. The, the core um, philosophy of our, of our visa granting system is family unification, refugees, and asylum. Th- that's, uh, those are noble causes, but, but they don't address the key economic need at the moment, which is we need to have a more rapidly growing labor force with a set of skills suited for the 21st century. We can use immigration to, to do some of that. Mm-hmm. Um, now you're tapped into. You, I mean, you're tapped into Congress. You you generally know what's what's happening. It seems like this is a conversation we've had quite a bit over the last couple of years. What what are the chances something gets actually done in this area? So I think if you look at the administration's priorities, you know, what have they been up to? They've only been around for a little over a week, but you know, number one, COVID nineteen, dealing with the virus itself. So you've heard a lot about the vaccination program and. And they've asked for money for contact tracing and testing and, and all that. So that's top priority. Second is the economy. How do you support the economy in, in this moment? Third is climate change, right? And, and they've talked a lot about climate change. And then stacked behind that is immigration and, and these issues of, uh, of racial and income equality tied together. Um, the latter stacked all the way back is the one that they they that they can only do with legislation. There's, there's no way around that. And so I think it, it goes slower and, and they, they stay at this steadily over a couple of years if they're successful. Interesting, That's something to watch for. Um, what about regulation? Uh, as you've often noted, uh, reigning in regulation following that regulatory budget um, was one of the key success of the Trump administration. The Biden administration is poised to take a different approach um, as we might've expect. Um, what changes has the new administration already made on this front? Uh, there were two important executive orders on this front. Uh, the first wiped out the Trump framework. Uh, the, the key element of it was a regulatory budget issued to each agency so that they could not impose more than a fixed amount of costs on the private sector. The incentives there are, if you need a new regulation, you have to get rid of something else. And, and you're always paying attention to costs. They wiped out the, the budgets. They wiped out the regulatory review teams in each agency that were paying attention to the costs and looking for old regulations to get rid of. And they have sent the message that costs aren't important. That's a pretty clear message. Don't worry about it. Uh, second thing they did was they directed the OMB director uh, to do um, regulatory modernization. Uh, key elements of modernization are twofold. Number one, the uh, Office of Information Regulatory Affairs, OIRA, which is the, the key uh, actor here, reviews regulations and, and, and looks at the benefits and the cost of those regulations as they come in from the agencies. And in doing that, they've been directed to pay more attention to and uh, uh, find a way to take into consideration unquantifiable benefits. So not unquantifiable benefits and unquantifiable costs. They, met, didn't, they left the latter out. So emphasis, again, don't worry about the costs. And, and you know, even if it doesn't pass the benefit cost, if it looks really good, you, you should probably say yes. And then do something that, that is uh, a different mission. Have OIRA go to the agencies and help them find regulations that will, be, will have great benefits. So they have, they have really changed the nature of that process if they literally have them out seeking new regulations um, because of their supposed benefits. So 
you know, these are EOs. They, they, they don't do things. They direct people to pursue the aspirations of the EO, and, and they don't always work out. We'll see. But I think the message is pretty clear. Like, we are not, we don't have a Trump uh, sort of approach to this. We're going to have regulations, and they might be costly. And here we go. Yeah, I'm sure something that uh, our great regulations team will be tracking on Reg Rodeo on a weekly basis for us. I believe so. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so let's move on to uh, climate change. Um, you noted earlier is their number three thing on in their in their prior, list of priorities. Um, I noted that Biden already moved to rejoin the Paris Agreement uh, last week, but yesterday, um, from time of recording, which was Wednesday, the 27th. He issued another executive order on climate change that directs a host of significant changes across government. What's going on here? Uh, this is probably the, the best example of not actually doing things, but directing people to seek things. And so they're, they're going to revisit things like the social cost of carbon. So if we have a regulation that removes uh, a ton of carbon from uh, the air, that, that's going to be a benefit because we're not going to have that social cost. How big is it? The Trump guys downsized that dramatically. They're going to blow it back up to 30, 40 ton, dollars a ton, something like that. Um, so, you know, let's go do that in every agency. Let's review um, how our regulatory approach impacts the, the climate and the, the environment. Um, and, and then they're going to report back places where every agency can make improvement. And then they'll start doing regulations on those. Interesting. Now, something that sounds much more in line with uh, the Trump administration, of course, is uh, Biden announced his uh, Buy American executive order. Um, these things always sound great, um, but what would this actually do and what does this likely impact? So uh, Buy American says that uh, you have to, when you, when you use taxpayer money for government uh, procurement, you have to buy, quote, American-made products, not buying from foreign sources. Um, so the first step in that is identifying what is an American-made product. And since often there are components that come in, you actually have to have some rule for the, the domestic content of a product. It has to be 80% domestic or 90 by value or, you know, so they, they upped the domestic content somewhat and they uh, got rid of some of the exemptions agencies could uh, appeal to, to to buy something from outside the U.S. And, and so there, there's a lot of hullabaloo around you got to buy American products and, and we're not going to let you avoid this and Americans really American, and it's not going to matter at all because uh, when we finally looked at the data, which is the reason why you should always look at the data, uh, only three and a half percent of federal dollars are spent on things sourced outside the U.S. My guess is that's the three and a half percent that they simply couldn't find in the U.S. So there's not a lot of room to change things. Then it occurred to me, well, Trump had a Buy America initiative as well. Uh, maybe this is just all because of the Trump administration. And we actually looked, and if you go back, uh, the, race, the the fraction was over 10%. It was up near 11% uh, toward the end of the Bush administration. And it, it it fell steadily during the Obama administration. And he had campaigned on Buy America. And then it it, it fell down to 3.5% under Trump. So we've really been at this for a long time. And um, I, I think there's just not a lot uh, room for improvement because we're basically buying American already. Interesting. Um, okay, so let's move on to Congress. Um, you know, the latest iteration of the uh, COVID-19 stimulus package is making its way. Discussions are underway. Um, you've raised a lot of questions about the $1.9 trillion size of this package and whether it's appropriate for ad addressing uh, the actual economic problems. 
Um, is it targeted enough? Um, is one of the big questions I keep hearing. Um, would you walk lis listeners through some of those key numbers? So uh, the first question is, you know, sort of how much more do we need to do? And and so the way I think about it is the peak to trough decline in this in the spring of 2020 was nine percentage points. So GDP declined by nine percent. The CARES Act was about 9% of GDP. So for a 9% problem, we came up with a 9% solution. We then did a bunch of subsequent sort of re-ups on PPP and things that added about a percentage or two of GDP. In December, we did $900 billion, nearly a trillion. So that's another 4% of GDP. So we're, we're somewhere in the vicinity of 14, 15% of GDP for a 9% problem. And now they want to add another 9%. So we're going to be well over 20% of GDP for a 9% problem. That, that just seems like a lot. Let's put it in those technical terms. So question number one, is this really the kind of response we want? And question number two, are all of these things really directed at the 9% problem? Well, the answer is no. If you start looking in there, there are things like raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour. That, that has nothing to do with getting a, a rapid recovery from the COVID recession. There are things like enhanced child tax credits, EITCs, that are not targeted on uh, the COVID, but are sort of permanent tax policy that the Democrats would like to get. And, and the list goes on. And so the, the, the real question is, okay, let's strip out the things that are, are just taking advantage of a, a crisis to do something. What's left? There they have a composition problem, in my view. Um, there's about $400 billion for vaccine distribution, uh, contact tracing, testing, eradication of the virus efforts. And I don't think anyone disputes the desirability of that outcome. And, and I don't think that's going to be contentious at all. Simultaneously, they, they're asking for a lot of money, trillion, uh, to allow schools to operate in the presence of the virus, to allow child cares to open in the presence of the virus, to extend UI so that people who can't work because of the virus can, can have some money. And in general, a very expensive shelter from the virus approach. Well, those two don't hang together. Either you're, you've got a strategy that's going to be successful and get rid of the virus, or you don't. So you either don't fund the vaccine thing and fund the other one, or do the vaccine thing and, and expect it to work, and you don't need the other one. So it's a little hard to to, to get this to all hang together, in my view. Yeah, one of the one of the things that I think we're seeing, you know, a lot of headlines about, of course, is the uh, is the uh, sending another round of checks to everybody. I mean, that seems to be, you know, one of the big Big, my least you know, part of this. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it, uh, I was going to ask, what, what, what do you suggest instead of something like this? I mean, is there an alternative that we should be thinking about rather than these stimulus checks that seem to get the big headlines? But politicians love sending checks. Let's just acknowledge that at the outset. But they have a terrible record as stimulus. So, 2008, Bush administration sent checks zero impact. Uh, 2010, Obama administration sent checks, zero impact. We sent checks last spring. Hard to find an impact for them in the middle of the, 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 uh, the pandemic. Um, so I, I don't think they have a great track record. In this circumstance, in fact, the stimulus part won't work because the whole idea behind stimulus is I give you money, you go spend it, and then they can hire somebody and they have more money and they can go spend it. The hiring is not happening because it's not safe because of the virus. And so the stimulus mechanism is broken by the virus. And so they won't work as stimulus. Um, for that reason, I don't think they make any sense. There is a case uh, to be made that there are 
Americans who have been out of work for a long time, who are in tremendous financial distress, and that we should be giving them relief, you know, carrying them through this as opposed to stimulus. But to do that, we have to target it on, on those people. And checks are just going to everybody. So, mm -hmm. so the alternative is, okay, let's have something that targets on especially long-term unemployed and provides sufficient resources to, to allow them to, to get through this. That, I think, is a coherent uh, policy framework. But that's not what we're seeing. Uh, also attached, um, as you mentioned earlier, uh, to the COVID-19 bill, which is seemingly unrelated, uh, is more than doubling of the federal minimum wage to $15. Um, our own Isabel Soto recently wrote about the potential implications of such a rapid, significant increase. Um, would you give us an overview about what she found? The issue with this is that um, there's now a lot of research which finds that on balance, raising the minimum wage harms job growth. And it doesn't harm job growth uniformly. It hits particular people. And so it is, it is the, the less skilled, uh, the least experienced uh, individuals who, who are typically the lowest paid. They're the ones who typically don't get um, hired because of a higher minimum wage. Teenagers are the poster children for this, right? They're just, they, they're too expensive. And at at a $15 an hour minimum wage, you're saying you have to pay $30,000 for a teenager to work. Um, that's expensive. Um, so, so if you look now in the data, you know, what's the unemployment rate for college graduates? 3.8%. What's the unemployment rate for people with a high school um, uh, diploma? 7.8%. What if you didn't finish high school? 9.8%. Who's not going to get hired? The, the, the guys without diplomas. I mean, they're... they're, they're they're going to get priced out of the market. So we're going to hurt those people who are already in the greatest distress. And, and that just seems unwise. And, and you can look at that by education. You can look at it uh, by, by communities of color. And, and you, you get the same story. Those already in the greatest distress are least likely to get rehired if we do this. Same is true for where they work. They typically work in small businesses. We've lost probably 25% of our small businesses. Currently, 40% have closed. Some hope to reopen. Will they all be able to reopen? Well, it's a much more costly structure if you go to $15 an hour, and so maybe not. Um, will they reopen with the same staff? Like you reopen the restaurant, let's bring back half the waiters. And um, so it, it, it's the wrong thing to do, especially now, because of the desire to get people back to work. It gets in the way of that. And I find it a perverse uh, form of redistribution because if, in fact, I don't get, get to go back to my waiter's job, uh, because of, of the $15 minimum wage. Effectively, you've taken my money and given it to someone who has a job. So we've taken it from someone who's not working to someone who is working. That doesn't make any sense. You wouldn't normally do that. You wouldn't run around and say, we, we need to tax unemployed people and give it to the employee. That, that's perverse. Same is true for the small business owner who doesn't reopen. You've essentially taken their livelihood, their income, and given it to, to someone else who's employed. And so it, I, it's... I can't say anything good about it. I mean, it's 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 a it's it's a, a poster child for someone on the left. They 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 want it in the name of fairness and in, in the name of, of equity. But if you look inside of it, it's tremendously unfair and inequitable. And I don't I don't I just don't think we should do it. Mm. Well, something we'll have to watch throughout because it is attached to the the COVID nineteen legislation. So we'll have to watch and see if it how it makes its way through at this point. Speaking of legislation making its way through Congress. Um, I want to end today's discussion um, with 
more of a process question for you. Um, the Senate is split 50-50, um, and we've heard a lot uh, of, about and a potential for Congress to use something called this reconciliation process. Um, for those of us uh, like me who are not budget geeks out there, um, what is this and how might Congress use it? Okay, so first, why does it have such a weird name? Um, uh, the weird name comes from the fact that it is part of the Budget Act of 1974, which was the first institution of budget process into the U.S. Congress. It created the budget committees. It created the annual cycle of having budget resolutions, plans for taxes and spending, um, and, and, and also created the Congressional Budget Office as sort of the, the institutional uh, underpinnings of this. And so um, you, you pass a budget resolution. That's essentially a plan to uh, have so much in the way of taxes, so much in the way of entitlement spending, so much in the way of annual spending. And then you want to somehow reconcile the difference between the plan and reality. Okay, that can be hard. And, and the concern at the time, 1974, was Congress doesn't like to raise taxes. Congress doesn't like to cut spending. we got to find a way to make it easier to do hard things. And, and so reconciliation was supposed to be an easier way to reconcile the, the budget to reality and do these hard things. And in particular, what it did was bypass the rules of the Senate, which allow for unlimited debate until a supermajority votes to end the debate, and then you take a vote for, for passage. Well, what it said is we can stop the debate um, with a fast track procedure, and, and you only need 51 votes then to pass it. You don't need 60. So so that's that's what reconciliation is, and it was intended to um, uh, cut budget deficits uh, in, a, in a more timely fashion. It has never been used for that. Okay, that's the important thing. Never. Instead, it has been used for the Reagan tax cuts. It has been used for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. It was used to finish the job on Obamacare, um, all sorts of things like that. And that has raised two issues. They were both raised by uh, the late Senator Robert Byrd of West Virginia. Both are called Byrd Rules, and um, they are what you're going to hear all sorts of things about. First is he didn't like the idea that instead of reducing budget deficits, it was creating some. So he objected to any reconciliation bill that created a deficit past the 10-year window, past the budget window. And so he created a point of order in the Senate rules that says, I can object to that reconciliation bill and, and we need 60 votes to override the point of order. So now you're back to 60-vote rule. Um, they ultimately embedded that in law. Okay, so now you've got this sort of anti-deficit piece hanging out there. That's one. But the second one you can hear so much about is they were using this to bypass the rules of his beloved Senate. He didn't like that. So it should only be used in the most limited fashion. You can't let them bypass on anything under the sun. So the second burden was whether something is genuinely a budgetary issue and or is it just trying to make policy in disguise? And, and that's a germaneness test. And so you look at a provision and say, is this really budgetary in nature or is the minimum wage? Yeah, it has budgetary effects, but they are incidental to the policy objective, which is to pay people more. And so non-germane things can get pulled out. That's the second bird rule. This stops passing a lot of things in reconciliation. We heard this when they tried to re repeal Obamacare using reconciliation. So they can't get rid of all of it because it's not budgetary. It, 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 the same is going to come up um, with, with a lot of the discussion uh, over the next year. So um, Short version is it, it, it was supposed to be a budgetary fast track for tough things. It's turned into a fast track for things that are not even necessarily budgetary. And, and there's attempts to, to sort of put guardrails on that process. And that's what we're going to hear about.
Gotcha. Well, how might Congress use this in the next, you know, two years? Uh, I, I think the current plan, if I can use that that term, is, is the I think the president would prefer to pass as much COVID relief as possible in regular order with uh, 10 votes of 10 of 10 Republicans. And and that's not going to be one point nine trillion. It's not going to be everything in that package. They would then promise to go back and get the rest using reconciliation and only Democratic votes. And then the issue becomes, OK, if we don't get the minimum wage, can we get it in reconciliation? And there will be a huge fight about whether it is germane to to the budget or not. And, and that's that's what we're I expect to see. Interesting. Well, Doug, thanks for joining us today. Um, I do, before I let you go, have to ask, um, this is our first weekend without football in a long time. What, what do you got planned? I don't know what to do with myself, Kyle. I'm, I'm, I'm quite nervous. Um, I, I think I might actually have to, you know, talk to other human beings via Zoom. And, and that's that's a little scary, don't you think? <laughs> from my perspective, it's going to be too cold to go golfing. So that's out for me. There's no football Sunday. I'm going to have to find something to do with my, my time this weekend. So we should probably just call each other and commiserate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Well, Doug, thanks again for joining us. Um, I look forward to our continued discussions throughout the year. Great. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.